Hi friends, this is Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of Unbecoming. Today we'll be talking about authors and their intentions, as in, when you read a book, are you able to think the same thoughts as the author? Or are your thoughts somehow like theirs, but not exactly? If you don't see the immediate practicality at that point, let me make it a little bit more pointed. If you say something to me, am I able to think the same thought that you're thinking? How close does my thought have to be to your thought in order to say that we've communicated? When you write a postcard or letter or an email or a text, does the person reading it have the same thought as the person who wrote it? At issue here is the basic question of how well any of us are able to express ourselves or make ourselves understood. However, before we can get that point, I'd like to take a few moments to talk about future offerings. On our first anniversary episode, I announced that we will be offering a course on the German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer. Regular listeners will know that Gadamer has come up frequently on the podcast, and that I find his way of looking at the world both really helpful and very relevant to many of the issues that are areas of focus for the podcast. While some of you may not know that I worked very closely with Gadamer towards the end of his life, I mentioned this briefly in the first and second part of the Gadamer series. After studying Gadamer's thought for most of my scholarly career and working directly with Gadamer himself, I can say with confidence that there are few people alive today who know Gadamer's work and thought as well as I do. I would suggest, though, that taking the Gadamer seminar isn't simply participating in a class. You would be inscribing yourself into a grand philosophical lineage. I studied under Gadamer. Gadamer studied under Heidegger, who is widely considered to be one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, even playing volleyball with him from time to time, much like Maverick and Goose in the original Top Gun. Heidegger studied under Husserl, who developed and formalized phenomenology as we know it today. From Husserl, you can trace all the way back to the Fortis school, which included such luminaries as Novalis, the Schlegel brothers, and Nietzsche. Taking this class is, in a philosophical sense, like being descended from one of the original passengers that came to America on the Mayflower. Perhaps by now you'd be interested in further details about the course. The course will run for four weeks, with a tour meeting each week. You'll be provided with a syllabus that includes all the reading, though you should know that this is going to be a pretty laid-back class. If you want to spend hours getting ready for the readings before class, that's great. If you'd rather just come to class to hear about Gadamer, that's great too. For the duration of the course, you'll have the opportunity to schedule office hours with me. During these meetings, I will be more than happy to discuss Gadamer, other philosophers you may be interested in, content that's come up on the podcast, and maybe just getting to know one another better. The course will start in October 2023, and enrollment will close on the 1st of October. Once enrollment is closed, I'll send out an email to all participants with a survey that will be used to set exact dates and times. I think we can find ways to make that all work for everyone. The final detail, pricing. The course is 200 However, if a participant is a Patreon subscriber on or before October the 1st, there's a discount of $40. At the same time, I realize that such a cost can still be prohibitive. 
So if you're interested in the course, but 200 is just a little bit too much for you to swing at, please do get in touch. I'm confident we can work something out. As I've said before, I'm really looking to build a community with this podcast, so I always do want to hear from you. Perhaps it would just be a short note to let me know that you're listening, or maybe a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode, or something in between. I've received some letters from you that have greatly gladdened my heart. And at the same time, the kind of world-building that we're trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is now my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And now on to the topic at hand, communication. Let me start by saying this. I believe that there are authors, that they have intentions, that words express intentions, and that readers and or listeners are able to discern those intentions. That's ba- basically my credo. Uh, credo is Latin for I believe. And making this podcast is, I think, a very strong piece of evidence for this belief. Why else would I be trying to communicate my intentions to you if I didn't think that was possible? I assume that most, if not all, evangelicals share this credo, and that it, or at least something akin to it, is a fundamental component of what we might call evangelical hermeneutics. That is, we believe the biblical authors had intentions, and that we today are capable of understanding those intentions. Thus, when Paul says, Now I would not have you ignorant, as the King James Version so elegantly renders, O Thelo de Humas Agnoen. He clearly intends to clear up that ignorance by communicating a meaning to us. As the NRSV puts it, Paul says, I want you to know. And I assume that by reading Paul's words, we were able to make Paul's wish come true. Yet what exactly does it mean to say that Paul has an intention and that it can be understood? Just how well does this work in actual practice? Evangelicals have long argued over the views of such hermeneutical theorists as Derrida, Jacques Derrida, we've already talked about, Gadamer, and another philosopher, well, really more of an English person, but someone who has written on interpretation, E.D. Hirsch. But these discussions tend to be very theoretical and often rhetorical. It's one thing to claim that we either can or cannot know the intentions of the author, but it's quite another thing to be clear as to what that statement means or whether it can be justified in actual practice. I'm less interested here in defending or decrying any of these theorists as I'm trying to get clear, or at least a little more clear, as to what it means to affirm the credo I proposed earlier. Thus, I'd like to propose a very modest project that we look at the phenomenon of communication and consider how it actually functions. Since Derrida, Gadamer, and Hirsch are all deeply indebted to the philosopher Edmund Husserl for their respective theories, Husserl's phenomenology is the logical starting point. Indeed, Hirsch claims that 
And now I'm quoting, Husserl's views provide an excellent context for discussing the central problems of interpretation. In what follows, I will set forth a simple analysis of how words work, using Husserl as our guide, and then consider the complications of that theory raised by both Derrida and Gadamer. I'll then make some comparison between Hirsch's view and those of Gadamer and Derrida, and then conclude with some observations on how my credo is affected. All right, let's begin then with Husserl. Although Husserlian terminology may sound intimidating, the basics of Husserl's theory of perception, meaning, and communication can be put in pretty simple terms. When I look outside of my window and see a tree, Husserl would say that I intend that tree. Thus, perception is for Husserl an example of an intentional act. Here, intentional does not mean that I look out my win window in order to see the tree. That may be true, too, of course. Perhaps I looked out my window in order just to know that there's a tree there. In any case, these two senses of intention are at work in Husserl's account, and they're easily confused. One is the ordinary sense of intention, such as when I say, my intention is to write a paper. The other is Husserl's use of the term in a more general sense. When I perceive an object or think a thought, I am intending that object or that thought. There are, of course, different ways of intending an object in this general sense. I may perceive a tree. I may imagine a tree. I may remember a tree in the backyard of my childhood home. I may judge that the tree is beautiful. In all of those cases, I'm intending a tree. When I intend an object in Husserl's general sense, that object is present to my mind. Although it might seem that Derrida's concern with presence is a Derridian aberration, it actually comes directly from Husserl. Depending on how present that object is to my mind, a meaning intention can be considered to be empty or filled, vague or distinct. The more filled and distinct my intention, the more present an object or meaning. That is, the cognitive content of my meaning intention is to my mind. An extreme example of empty and vague intending would be that of reciting the first line from Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig in the slivy toves did gyre and gimble in the waba." When I say those words, there's almost nothing present to my mind. Although the words and and the have some meaning. So, for example, I know that it's the waba and not just a waba. There really isn't much of a meaning intention which accompanies the rest. A less extreme example of lack of presence is when, for example, I speak of the entity Westminster Abbey without ever having been there. If I've only heard of this term and I note some church-like building, then Husserl would say that its presence to me is merely signative. In other words, the phrase Westminster Abbey is just a sign to me. A step up from this is when I see a picture of the abbey. In such a case, it is pictorially present to my mind. Even better, of course, were I to visit the abbey and tour the cloister and the poet's corner, it would be considerably more present to me. A further step up is the experience of the abbey that people have who work there. In other words, being able to 
enter all of the side chapels and the little nooks that the public never sees. Having that sense of presence of the entity Westminster Abbey is much greater. It is both more full, that is, there's just more of it, and more distinct, that is, such knowledge has more detail and clarity. Thus, the entity Westminster Abbey is more evident in this second case. It shouldn't be difficult to see that the ideal for intentionality is full and distinct presence. Husserl describes such a presence by saying that the object is itself there, immediately intuited. Now, this is the ideal that's summed up by medieval philosophers as, and now comes a Latin phrase that might sound a little scary, but it's really not complicated. Adequatio re et intellectus. The adequation between the intentional object and the intentional act. Adequation here is how does the thing that I'm intending and my intending match up? The more, of course, they match up, the more that thing is present to my consciousness. Now, there is a significant problem with this ideal of adequation. Husserl thinks that there's a limit to just how fully and distinctly a real object, that is, one composed of matter which occupies space, like a tree or Westminster Abbey, can be intended. On Husserl's account, I will never be able to have 100% presence of a real object. Why, you might ask? One reason is that the more complex an object is, the potentially more there is to know about it. Even if we take a relatively simple object, such as the tree, there is so much to know about it that one could study trees or even one particular tree all of one's life and still not know everything about trees or that particular tree. Perhaps one might be inclined to think that a really simple object, such as a tree, could be known in full, but even knowing that would require a complete understanding of molecular theory. Obviously, a rich entity like Westminster Abbey could never be known in a lifetime, even if you spent your life as a tour guide there. But there's another reason why I think 100% presence isn't possible for real objects. Since real objects exist in time and space, I can never perceive all of their aspects at once. So I can see the tree from this particular angle or move around and see it from a different angle, but I can't see both angles at the same time. To put this complication another way, all perception is perceptival, according to Husserl. That is, we always see an object or know a meaning from a certain perspective. And I can only see something from one perspective at a given time. However interesting Cubist paintings may be, the attempt to present us multiple perspectives on one canvas certainly doesn't succeed in giving us all of the possible perspectives on an object at once. The notion of perspective is already present in Husserl's early thought, but it becomes much more complex as his thought develops. Although Husserl originally held in his early work that the possibility of perceiving or knowing an object with complete presence is a regulative ideal which cannot be achieved, in his later thought he became convinced that the very notion of non-perspectival perceiving and knowing simply made no sense. All human perceiving, knowing, and communicating is perspectival. 
But there is a complication here, too. For in his middle philosophy, Husserl holds two theses that seem difficult to reconcile. On the one hand, Husserl tells us that the guiding principle of phenomenology, what he calls the principle of principles, is that all phenomena must be allowed to appear just as they are, without any presuppositions getting in the way. Early in the logical investigations, Husserl had maintained that a pure phenomenology is one in which there is, and now I'm quoting, freedom from metaphysical, scientific, and psychological presuppositions. Thus, all presuppositions, simply because they are presuppositions, are bad. Accordingly, Husserl continues this insistence by saying that each phenomenon, and here I'm quoting, is to be accepted simply as what it is, and within the limits in which it is presented there. On the other hand, Husserl insists that when I perceive or think about a particular object, that perception or thinking is always from a particular horizon. He says that the perceived object is always penetrated and surrounded by an obscurely intended horizon. What he means basically is when you focus on something, there's always a background there. You can change your focus to focus on different aspects of the background, but then the thing that you originally focused on becomes part of the background. In order to preserve the object from contamination from this horizon, Husserl says we must bracket the horizon out, or to use the language he uses, suspend it. Obviously, a major question here is, whether Husserl can just will the horizon away. Can I simply exclude all metaphysical, scientific, religious, moral, and any other beliefs from my perception and cognition? Hmm, the answer is probably going to be no. But even if Husserl's suspension really works in practice, there is still the fact that, at the basis of perceiving and knowing, there is what Husserl calls the transcendental ego. That sounds complicated, too, but basically the transcendental ego is, is just the I, the me, that's at the foundation of all of my acts of knowing. Thus, the I is the irreducible horizon for the appearance of the phenomena. It's difficult to reconcile this idea that there's some sort of horizon present in acts of perception and cognition with the idea that the object appears free from anything which might affect it. No matter how much bracketing Husserl might do, the transcendental ego, or the I, remains the horizon on which objects appear. In other words, you can't just make yourself go away. You are always there when you intend something, when you think, or when you communicate about that thing. Having considered the basics of Husserl's theory of intending, how does all of this apply to communication? We've seen that although Husserl terms all mental acts intentional in the sense that I've been discussing, they can also be intentional in the specific sense of wanting to do something. Thus, when we talk about authors' intentions, we can mean at least two things. One, the object or the meaning that the author intends at a given moment, for example, the tree, and two, what the author intends to communicate to a reader, for example, the experience of that tree. 
These two kinds of intentions may coincide, as when I describe the tree that I'm now viewing in writing, or they may diverge from one another. Thus, I may have a meaning in mind, but choose not to communicate that meaning to you. Or I may choose to communicate only a portion of that meaning to you. Or perhaps I simply only succeed in communicating a portion when I had intended to communicate the entire object being intended. Assuming I wish to communicate, how does that happen? Simply put on Husserl's account of language, there are three basic components, minds, words, and meanings. Human minds use words to express meanings. So if I have a meaning before my mind, I express that meaning to you by putting that meaning into words and either speaking or writing those words. Obviously, you have to understand the language I'm speaking or writing in order to get that meaning. Moreover, in order for me to make that meaning present to your mind, Husserl thinks that it must be first present to my mind. That seems a reasonable assumption. The reason why meanings can be communicated at all is because they are for Husserl ideal objects. That's a strange-sounding sort of thing. He thinks that they are spiritual entities which have no location in space. Again, this terminology may sound kind of strange. Husserl thinks meanings are ideal precisely because they can be infinitely repeated and yet remain the same. Hirsch, who is clearly indebted to Husserl here, puts this as follows. An unlimited number of different intentional acts can intend the same verbal meaning. According to Husserl, words, sentences, texts, poems, symphonies, ideas, scientific formula, mathematical theorems, and meanings are all ideal objects. Thus, a symphony can be performed again and again and still retain its identity. Husserl holds that ideal objects are created by way of intentional acts. In other words, they have an historical point of origin. Thus the phrase, to be or not to be, came into existence when Shakespeare or Bacon or Christopher Marlowe or whoever wrote it. And it has existed ever since and can be repeated by actors or printed on a t-shirt. So if meanings are ideal objects that can be communicated by authors to the readers, how does that work in practice? Briefly put, Husserl thinks that there are three steps to the creation of ideal objects. First, you have an insight. Second, that insight passes into short-term and perhaps long-term memory. Third, the insight is then put into writing. In order to see how well all of this works in practice, we need to consider these steps in some detail and examine some of the problems that Derrida raises with them. Even though Husserl describes the process of ideal object creation and transmission in a short essay titled The Origin of Geometry, the essay really isn't about geometry per se. Instead, it's about how ideal objects come into existence and how they can be passed along from one person to the next over a long period of time so they become you know, cultural objects. Given that focus, what Husserl says is clearly relevant to biblical interpretation and for that matter, interpretation of any kind. In other words, how is a biblical author able to encapsulate a meaning in words, and how are we able to recover that meaning? According to Husserl, an ideal object begins as an idea or as an experience. For instance, I get a thought, and it's now present into my mind. Perhaps it's the solution to a philosophical problem. Or else I have a direct experience. 
when the Apostle Paul speaks of his conversion, it's on the basis of an experience that he himself had. Similarly, when he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, he's narrating his own experience. In this case, he writes about his experience of writing. Husserl uses the example of the Pythagorean theorem. We really don't know who came up with this insight, and for Husserl, it doesn't really much matter. But we know that somebody originally thought this up. But here's the crucial question. When one has this original insider experience, at that very originary, original moment, just how present is it to one's mind? The answer, of course, is, well, that depends on what sort of insider experience it is. Husserl's example of the Pythagorean theorem is a paradigmatic case. In other words, it's hard to imagine a case of greater presence than the knowledge of a geometric theorem. If I say to myself, the square of the length of the hypotenuse of a right triangle equals the sum of the squares of the lengths of the two other sides, that seems pretty well present to my mind. Or if you like, try a simpler example. How about 2 plus 2 equals 4? Isn't that basically 100% present to my mind when I think that thought and say those words? Derrida provides an even better example. At one point, Husserl says the following. It's certainly possible to think of oneself as speaking and even as speaking to oneself, as, for example, when someone says to himself, you have gone wrong, you can't go on like that. But in the genuine sense of communication, there is no speech in such cases, nor does one tell oneself anything. On Husserl's account, when I speak to myself, my inward speech is perfectly present to me. In fact, it only seems as if I'm speaking to myself because I'm not communicating anything that I didn't already know. Probably the best example of not telling myself anything new is when I say the word I to myself. For here, the subject and the object are one and the same. It's the I referring to itself. But Derrida asks, am I really present to myself? To put this personally, when I speak of me, is the person Bruce Ellis Benson with his various facets, male, queer, American, Canadian, philosopher, citizen of Edinburgh, host of this podcast, for example, fully present to my mind? Given that the eye is always multifaceted, something which Paul, for instance, clearly recognizes in Romans 7, in which he speaks of a kind of war between the parts of his being, can all of those different aspects of ourselves and all of their fullness be present to my mind? Early we noted that real objects can never be fully present to our minds. Derrida thinks that the I, the self, is actually in a similar situation. And it's hard not to agree with Derrida here. We don't seem to be fully present to ourselves. A distinction that Husserl makes might help clarify this point. Husserl distinguishes between two ways in which words denote something, expression and indication. Expression is a direct expressing or revealing of the object intended. In such a case, I say the word and the object to which it refers is immediately present in my mind. The other possibility is that of indication. In such a case, my saying of the word points to something that's not present, or at least not fully present in my mind. Using that distinction, Derrida argues that no words give us full expression of meaning. Instead, expression is always connected to indication. 
There are at least three reasons why Derrida thinks this is the case. First, Husserl himself says that the two are connected. To quote Husserl, meaning and communicative speech is always bound up with such an indicative relation. Second, while words do make objects present to us, those objects, argues Derrida, are never fully present to us. That's not to say that they aren't present to us at all. In other words, there can certainly be real presences on Derrida's account. Borrowing from Levinas, Derrida speaks of presence in terms of the trace. Objects are present to us, but present as a kind of trace, not fully present. Thus, when Derrida makes the seemingly extravagant claim, there never was any perception, that's a quote from him, there never was any perception, he is specifically arguing against the notion of perception as full and direct presence, not perception at all. Third, the very presence of objects points to something else. There are different ways of working out this last aspect, this idea of pointing to something else. Basically, the issue here is one of relation between intended object and something other than it. The issue is simple to state. It is considerably more complex, however, to explain. Using Husserlian terminology, we might say that the intended object is always intended against a particular horizon. Put in more hermeneutical terms, we could say that objects, including texts, always go with contexts. Or to use a distinction made by E.D. Hirsch, meaning is always connected to significance. On Hirsch's account, meaning is that which is represented by a text, and significance names a relationship between that meaning and a person, or conception, or situation, or indeed anything imaginable. As far as I can see, Derrida would not disagree with Hirsch on that that such a distinction can and should be made. Meaning, whether that an object or a text, is not simply reducible to significance, that is, to its background or its context, or vice versa. But just how closely are objects tied to that background? In other words, how strongly can this distinction be drawn? Going back to our earlier example, note that I never perceive a tree apart from a given background. Of course, I can try and extrapolate that tree by Husserl's bracketing from that background, at least to some extent. Yet how closely is the perception of the tree connected to the horizon on which it appears? It's hard to see how they could be completely disconnected. Similarly, if I read a text, the meaning, how closely is that text connected to other texts, or my own context, the significance? But we need to stop there. We'll turn to this exact question in the next episode. I hope you found today's episode informative, and perhaps even challenging for either your thought or for your actions. If you found today's episode helpful, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast, or through paypal.com or the PayPal app, the username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you join us for the conclusion of this discussion.